This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Shortly after Woodstock, the summer before, in New Haven, Connecticut, 1970, Yale Library. A young male law student standing in the hallway just outside the library caught the eye of a young, bell-bottomed, jeans-wearing female law student, and vice versa. As the two of them stared at each other, the young woman finally got up from her studies, to which she wasn't paying any attention to anyway, and walked out to meet the young man. Twenty-four years later, Hillary Rodham Clinton told the story of that fateful day. He was standing out in the hallway, and I just, I don't know, you know those moments, you know, sort of like click, you know, and I was sitting there, and I just started staring at him, and then he caught my eye, and he began staring back at me, and so here I am in the library, not reading, here he is, actually surrounded by people who are talking at him, not talking back, so finally, I thought, this is ridiculous, you know, I'm in this class with this person, and so... I put my books down and I went up and I said, you know, if you're going to keep looking at me and I'm going to keep looking at you, we ought to at least know each other's names. I'm Hillary Rodham. Who are you? And he says that he couldn't remember his name. That makes me feel so good when he says that. Um, But anyway, he did sort of stumble out. I'm Bill Clinton. A few days later, perhaps with Simon and Garfunkel's bridge over troubled water playing on Bill's AM radio in his car, or more likely Edwin Starr's war, Cranked up to ear-shattering levels, Bill and Hillary went out on their first date. Bill Clinton, a Rhodes Scholar who had studied at Oxford, and Hillary Rodham, a bright and radical law student who graduated from Wellesley before moving on to Yale Law, were married five years later in 1975. While at Wellesley, Hillary wrote a 92-page senior thesis, which she later suppressed while in the White House, which centered on radical Marxist community organizing activist Saul Alinsky, author of Rules for Radicals, a how-to book on achieving revolution in America. This is the book where the author gave an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to Lucifer, quote, the very first radical. As unusual as that may seem, in 1972, in an interview with Playboy magazine, Alinsky said, quote, Hell would be heaven for me. All my life I've been with the have-nots. Over here, if you're a have-not, you're short of dough. But if you're a have-not in hell, you're short of virtue. Once I get into hell, I'll start organizing the have-nots over there. Playboy asked, why them? To which Alinsky responded, they're my kind of people. Alinsky wasn't joking. He wasn't being flippant. And it wasn't the first time he'd claimed to prefer hell over heaven, as you can hear from this 1966 interview. I suppose, given a choice, I think I would uh, pick hell. The reason I'd pick hell is because that's where all the have-nots are. Hillary Rodham interviewed Alinsky multiple times. She apparently was quite influenced by him. She did, however, find fault with some of Alinsky's methods, believing them to be ineffective. He believed that radicals should pressure the government. Hillary decided it would be much more effective to become the government. That was the fundamental difference between the two. For his part, Alinsky was so taken with Rodham, he offered her a job, which she declined. 
Armed with her Yale Law degree, Hillary went working as a lawyer, fighting for justice. Today, Hillary ferociously touts her lifelong record of fighting for children. Uh, one of the areas that you know, I've been particularly interested in is uh, the area of children. All of us have a responsibility to ourselves, to our children, to each other. I've spent my life fighting for children, families, and our country, and I'm not stopping now. But in 1975, Hillary fought against a 12-year-old child rape victim. She was appointed to defend a 41-year-old man accused of brutally raping the little girl. Clinton did have a job to do, and she did it well. She accused the child of exaggerating or even encouraging her rapist. She also got the accused rapist's bloody underwear thrown out as evidence. Hillary did such a good job defending the accused child rapist, she wound up plea bargaining. Just one year in prison for him, minus the two months time served. He served 10 months for the crime. During her young adulthood, Hillary Clinton also became enamored with an early 20th century progressive, a term she also applies to herself, named Margaret Sanger. Sanger had some fascinating ideas, like the one that was outlined in her 1922 book, Women and the New Race, where she wrote, Many, perhaps, will think it idle to go farther in demonstrating the immorality of large families, but since there is still an abundance of proof at hand, it may be offered for the sake of those who find difficulty in adjusting old-fashioned ideas to the facts. The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. End quote. In a letter to Clarence Gamble in 1939, Sanger wrote about getting black preachers to help with her efforts. Quote, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. End quote. During a speech in 1923, Sanger said she believed that for the purpose of racial purification... Couples should be rewarded for choosing sterilization. Sanger wanted to create the perfect human race. Quote, we want a world freer, happier, cleaner. We want a race of thoroughbreds. End quote. Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood with that one goal in mind. To create racial purification. To eliminate the Negro. She was in favor of the strictest immigration policies to keep undesirables out of the country. Hillary, for her part, would eventually heap praise on Sanger in later years, such as in 2009 when she received the Margaret Sanger Award from Planned Parenthood. She spoke about being in awe of the racist eugenicist. It was a great privilege when I was told that I would receive this award. I admire Margaret Sanger enormously, her courage, her tenacity, her vision. And when I think about what she did all those years ago in Brooklyn, taking on archetypes, taking on attitudes and accusations flowing from all directions, I am really in awe of her. Margaret Sanger's vision, of which Hillary so fondly spoke, was one that was very similar to the vision of the Nazis. 
As Sanger herself essentially admitted, her campaign for contraception and abortion, quote, is practically identical in ideal with the final aim of eugenics, end quote. When later asked at a congressional hearing about being, quote, in awe of Margaret Sanger, Hillary Rodham Clinton said, I admire Thomas Jefferson. I admire his words and his leadership, and I deplore his unrepentant slaveholding. I admire Margaret Sanger being a pioneer in trying to empower women to have some control over their bodies. And I deplore statements that you have referenced. That is the way we often are when we look at flawed human beings. There are things that we admire and things we deplore. We have for eight years followed the policy that you have described. And I think we've gone backwards. After discovering and admiring the work of so many radicals during her Ivy League years, the Clintons moved southwest. The Clintons moved back to Bill's home state of Arkansas, where he initially ran an unsuccessful campaign for Congress. Undeterred in 1976, he ran for and was elected Arkansas Attorney General. This was just the beginning. In 1978, Bill Clinton ran for governor and at the age of 32 was elected the youngest governor the nation had seen in 40 years. Tonight, I ask all of you who have stood with me, I ask my opponents and those who have fought with them in their hard-fought campaign, I ask those who have believed in me and those who have doubted to join with me in common purpose. Let us put aside our fears for our hopes. Let us trust each other and work to forge a future that will enrich the lives of our people, a future that will strengthen our traditions and our faith, a future that will make us proud that in our time we gave our best. God bless you all and thank you very much. That same year, the Clintons began a complicated and tangled personal and business relationship with James and Susan McDougall. They joined with the McDougals to borrow $203,000 to buy 220 acres of land in Arkansas in the Ozark Mountains. They soon formed the Whitewater Development Corporation with a plan in mind to build vacation homes. The massive and tangled web of controversy and scandal ensued. It involved James McDougall briefly becoming Clinton's economic development director, a position he soon quit. And instead, McDougall bought a small savings and loan bank, which he named Madison Guarantee. He then loaned Hillary Clinton $30,000 to build a model home on a whitewater lot. In 1984, federal regulators began to question the financial stability and lending practices of Madison Guarantee along with its speculative land deals, insider lending, and hefty commissions to the McDougals and others. In 1985, McDougal held a fundraising event at Madison Guarantee to help pay off a $50,000 Clinton campaign debt. Also, McDougal hired the Rose Law Firm, where Hillary was now a partner, to do all of the legal work. In 1986, McDougal borrowed $300,000 from a company that received federal funds from the Small Business Administration to lend to disadvantaged business owners. But an investigation 10 years later alleged that they lent up to $3 million to political figures instead. 
1988, witnesses at the Rose Law Firm said that Hillary requested the destruction of Madison land contract files. From there, it just gets more complex. The scandal would continue to haunt the Clintons through the gubernatorial re-elections and all the way to the White House. The scandal was so deep and so complicated, very few people even understood it. Special prosecutors were hired by Clinton's own Attorney General, Janet Reno, but questions loomed about the propriety of the arrangement. So eventually, an independent prosecutor named Kenneth Starr was appointed. Over the next several years, tens of millions of dollars were spent on the investigation and the defense. Dozens of people were eventually charged. Fifteen were convicted. Whitewater may have begun as a legitimate real estate venture, but it came to be used to skim, directly or indirectly, federally insured deposits from an SNL and a small business investment corporation. When each failed, the United States taxpayer became obligated to pick up the tab. Eventually, the McDougals would be charged, tried, and convicted of fraud and conspiracy. The ensuing scandal would eventually even take down the Arkansas governor who succeeded Bill Clinton, Jim Guy Tucker, among others. James McDougal died March 8, 1998, just a few months before he hoped to be released from prison. The Clintons themselves were never charged. Coincidentally, other close associates of the Clintons would die along the way. That and a lot more on the next installment. Glenn Beck, The Blaze Radio Network.